You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us at ACCA um, for the artist talks associated with um, our new exhibition here at ACCA, A Biography of Daphne, um, which precede this afternoon's opening event. Um, we're really delighted to welcome you to ACCA. We won't be having formal speeches because of gathering uh, restrictions. But we're really delighted you could join us for um, this afternoon's artist um, talks uh, introduced by Mikna Merkan, the guest curator, and we're delighted to have Mikna with us and also Nick Mangan and Lauren Burrow. But before introducing Mikna and the artists, um, it's my great pleasure and our honour to welcome uh, Naweed Carolyn Briggs. Uh, Auntie Carolyn is senior Bunwarang elder, uh, chair of the Bunwarang Foundation and she's also the chair of the Yalingwa uh, advisory group here at ACCA. And we um, are very honoured to have had a long association with Auntie Carolyn, who indeed named this whole precinct and complex Naji in 2002, when it was opened um, by, uh, with the Brax government in 2002. And that name gives itself to the um, Naji courtyard. Um, and Auntie Carolyn is also a, I think, Indigenous Research Fellow at Monash University, um, where Mikna is also a PhD candidate. So it's really wonderful to um, welcome Auntie Carolyn, who will offer us a welcome to country. I thought I was there with Wa. No smoking ceremony, but Wa's there. So it's um, bird calls and what we remind ourselves that we still are connected to country. And this week, we're also celebrating NADOC, Care for Country. And I've been on little Zooms everywhere today. Weekends don't give you a little bit of a rest because I've been with um, Quakers. And the Quakers' history is a long one too, working with Indigenous people since the impact of um, colonisation and our convicts and ensuring Indigenous people and recording all our vegetation, plant lives and protecting those. So it's been a massive journey for my awakening and I'd like to pay my respects because there's five Australian artists in this collective of 25 artists. The 20 are from overseas. So in this pandemic, this has been an amazing effort to ACCA and to you, Max, and your team. Wow. In the language afforded to me, it's Wamanjika, Marambikbik Bunarong, Nanda, Barupton, Arta. Willem. I'd like to pay my respects to my ancestors and to all of you who are here today. Come with a purpose to our beautiful home, the lands of the two great bays, Nurm, Port Phillip Bay, and Marin, Western Port Bay. And you know me as um, Noe, Carolyn Briggs, and it is my duty here today to welcome you to country, but more specifically to to ask that you do come with a purpose to our country. The word Wamanjika is not just much of a meaning of a welcome, but rather a directive for you to come with a purpose. 
So I need you to think about why you are here. Purpose is a really an interesting thing. It is something that we need, that needs to be bigger than ourselves. It is also that has to be something that is beneficial for our jambana, our communities. So think about your presence and how it relates to those few things. According to our Bunwarang stories, our lands where we meet today, that were created by our Bunjil, our creative spirit, who travels as an eagle. Bunjil not only created our lands of the, of the Kulin, he also created our Warongi Bik, or our laws of the land. Our Warongi Bik dictates how we have to ask all guests and visitors to make a number of dumbbells or, or commitments. And these dumbbells are, are a request not to harm our big bigs, our lands, not to harm our warani, our waterways, and particularly not to harm the children of Bonjo, our bubbles. Warungi Bik includes our laws about Jambana community, our laws about Yelanj, knowledge, and our laws about Pavanata, Mother Earth, or we may say honouring sacred ground. And if we can commit ourselves to these Dumbals, I can say once again in the language of my ancestors, Wamanjika, Marambikbik, Bunarong, Namdep, Barupton, Atta Willem. Welcome to our beautiful home, the lands of the two great bays. So it is about where we position ourselves whenever we're on country. And Nagi is an, another word what you, you'd know as the um, corroboree. Our word is Nagi. Come, celebrate, present these beautiful imagery and stories that lay behind it. It's generations of international stories that have been portrayed out here today. So I wish you well on your journey and experiencing how artists can portray these beautiful images that I've just quickly had a snapshot of information that has now scaffolded my learning a bit more. So Nungujan, you are in my presence and I'm in yours. Thank you, Nawi, for um, inaugurating the exhibition, for welcoming the artists, for welcoming us onto country, and for reminding us of the importance of caring for culture, country, and community. Um, it's indeed a great honour to have your involvement, and it's also a great honour, thank you, to welcome Mikna Merkan, who is guest curator of a biography of Daphne. Um, Mikna arrived in Melbourne, I think, approximately three years ago. He's been working on this project over that time, um, alongside his PhD research at Monash University. Uh, Mikna has an eminent uh, exhibition history in Europe. He is originally from Bucharest in Romania and has worked in a number of institutions uh, and uh, with a great exhibition history. We're really honoured to be able to present this major project involving 25 artists, um, historical and contemporary works, which um, looks at the myth of Daphne and Apollo as a sort of platform or a thinking model to consider 
wider cultural, political, ecological and social contexts uh, in relationship to contemporary art today. Um, so for, for this um, session, we uh, will be having a short introduction from Mikna here in the foyer, and we will then follow um, uh, Mikna into the gallery to meet with Nick Mangan and uh, Lauren Burrow. Um, if I could ask that we do, we have got some speakers in the gallery so that we can maintain um, appropriate social distance um, to keep COVID safe. Um, and the speakers um, will perhaps take their masks off, but we do ask people to retain their masks if they would. Um, and um, it's also, um, I send apologies from Matthew Jones, who is unwell and is therefore getting, doing the responsible thing and getting a test today. So he won't be able to join us. So we'll be hearing from Mikna and from Nick Mangan and from Lauren Burrow. So without further ado, please welcome Mikna Merkan. Hi everyone, thanks so much for, for coming. Thank you so much, Auntie Carolyn, for the beautiful um, welcome to country. Thank you, Max, for this extraordinary opportunity and for your extraordinarily generous collaboration. It was insightful and inspiring, and I warmly thank you and your, your team. Um, I'm trying to remember what the project is about, as, as, as this is the, in, in a way, it feels like all my thoughts over the last three years converge in this, in this moment. Um, the exhibition, as you know, uh, is about Daphne's transformation into a laurel tree uh, in order to avoid um, Apollo's unwanted, unwanted embrace. So a biography of Daphne is in a way the biography of a point of inflection, the, the biography of a rupture, of a moment when there is a, an ontological transition between two corporeal templates and two orders of existence. Um, so I ask myself what kind of images stem or hemorrhage perhaps from this from this wound um, and I the project began from from the assumption that metamorphosis is not a linear process but rather a spiraling one of a, a figure the spiral and and circularities and revolutions that recur throughout the exhibition and to begin to map out the the project I, I, I thought that um, Metamorphosis could be narrated alongside three trajectories. Um, in one of these, one of these would be becoming three. Uh, the other would be another would be becoming contemporary, and the third one would be becoming image. Um, Daphne's becoming three is is in a way confined. Uh, it's not um, stilted, perhaps not allowed to fully turn into the laurel tree uh, that that she will eventually become. So the project is in a way chronologically contained between these two uh, quite remarkable images that we were lucky to be able to loan from the NGV and the Art Gallery of New South Wales, respectively, that, that you will see at the entrance at the, and the exit from the exhibition. So they are the first and the last pictures in the show, definitely running into the exhibition and exiting from it, in a sense, uh, and suggesting in, in, in the way in which they bracket the show, suggesting that the show is preoccupied with the trauma and the metamorphosis rather than, than the actual um, emergence of a new species of tree into the world. Um, becoming contemporary is something that happens in, in Daphne's quite illustrious iconographic history. She seems to have something to say to all epochs, and her trauma is endlessly reanimated, revisited, and reimagined by each epoch in, in, the Western, in Western art history. There seems to be something fundamental that she has to say in relation to each epoch's notions of self and place. Um, um, body and environment, um, monstrous form and, and metamorphosis. And the exhibition inscribes itself in this lineage um, as each 
historical artist that represents Daphne in a way, imagines a contemporary backdrop for her presentation, so does the exhibition, attempting to create a contemporary, um, a contemporary landscape around Daphne's transformation where her message, coded message to us, might be decrypted in relation to um, the fraught questions of um, ecology and identity today. Uh, becoming image, the last trajectory that I will briefly uh, briefly mention is um, possibly the possibly the one that that is most amply represented in the show, and it's it's quite a, a remarkable flip in terms of the, um, the axis of orientation of uh, of Daphne's body. It's the transition from, in a sense, from portrait to landscape, uh, from from a figure that is kind of sharply profiled against its backdrop in the, as I said, in the, in the first image of, of, uh, of, of the exhibition to a, a moment of, of panoramic overload where the figure is in a way engulfed or swallowed um, by, its, by its ground. Um, should I stop here? I'm quite keen to hear from, from, from Nick and Lauren um, and perhaps I we'll be able to add a few more things um, about the exhibition in general in response to their, their introductions, for which, for which I am very grateful. Thank you all so much, and I hope you enjoyed the exhibition. Please join us in Gallery One. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I also um, wanted to extend uh, my acknowledgement to Auntie Caroline Caroline for that um, really lovely welcome to country. Um, it's hard to know where to start in talking about this piece, but I'll, firstly I just wanted to thank Mikna um, for the ongoing conversation and for allowing to be, um, to, to move alongside him as he um, worked through this exhibition and the thinking along it. I feel like this is like the kind of fifth or sixth iteration of many possible shows and there are many more that exist in his mind every time he talks. I get like a completely different exhibition because there are so many ideas that are bouncing off each other through the works and also through Mikna's um, exhibition making. So um, soon after Mikna arrived in Melbourne, he introduced the premise for this exhibition and it sort of coincided with um, some of my own thinking for a new work, but I guess um, for some themes that I've sort of been exploring in my work over various years to do with transformation and um, the human impact on nature in many ways. And um, I had just sort of been doing some early research into um, the Great Barrier Reef, and I guess like all of us who live in Australia, even for those of us like myself who have never actually been there, it's something that's like deeply ingrained in our psyche. It's, it's, it's in, in, in many ways, it almost exists as a con contemporary um, fable. It's this um, site of a very kind of real um, way of materially evidencing the, the climate catastrophe that's upon us right now, but it also has been used as a political football. Um, and um, so as the fact that we've been stuck in COVID meant that I haven't been able to tra actually travel there to sort of see it for myself. So I um, had this kind of, my initial idea was to sort of, because in, in looking at the Great Barrier Reef and, and the way that certain scientists and 
um, biologists are looking at that, there is a kind of attempt to transform that or to terraform this um, devastated um, organism. And I guess the thing that's kind of really alarming to me and really interesting to me is that, that the Great Barrier Reef's gone from being one of the largest living organisms to one of the largest dying organisms. And I was really interested in the way that different practitioners and researchers had been trying to engage with this site and building kind of um, fake reefs to kind of spawn the rehabilitation of reefs. And there have been so many different um, approaches, some of them absurd, some of them useful, some of them perhaps not. But um, in, in sort of my background research, I came across this story of um, Tiffany and Co, who some of you might know are a kind of very famous um, jewelry international company who had sort of um, decided to stop using coral in jewelry um, for obvious reasons. And it was mainly the, you know, the, the history of red coral or corillium, um, precious coral it's called, has been used in jewelry since the Egyptians and Navajos have used it as trading necklaces and, and whatnot. But, you know, so I guess I was kind of interested in the kind of um, the desire or the capture of nature in that sense as a kind of way of kind of tapping into this um, myth of Daphne. And I, I learned that Tiffany and co were working with the guy who actually invented the Australian plastic banknote. Um, they were trying to work with him to come up with a kind of bioplastic that would act like a sunscreen um, for um, blocking out the sun from sort of heating up the corals. And uh, it, I thought that was kind of interesting, but then it sort of got me thinking about jewellery and the history of jewellery in, in coral and this idea of, you know, ex, a kind of form of extractivism that happens there or kind of this idea of, you know, the desire or capitalism. But also, um, I, I kind of was trying to make this work where it was kind of an absurd proposal where I wanted to get um, some bleached coral and pulverise it down and turn it and, and 3D printed into the shape of the human bronchi because I was really interested in the arborescent connection between the human lungs and coral. And I guess looking at that in a formal sense, but also thinking about the kind of the way that we as humans are connected to the ground. And I know this is something Mikna talks about with, with the work in terms of the figure in the ground, but the fact that um, calcium is something that exists in our bones, but also in corals, and corals have been used for like um, bone repair and, and so I was really interested in these kind of correlations on a formal level and also on a material level and anyway like this idea of um, casting this thing or um, 3D printing this thing was kind of not going to happen and I had to find another way of kind of how did I deal with this interest I had in sort of dealing with the, the lungs and breath and you know oxygen that's given off by corals and I came to this form, which many of you might recognise, is the kind of the jewellery bust that you see in a jewellery store. And, and I'd always been kind of quite taken by the kind of almost sombre appearance of these kind of naked stands when the jewellery gets put away at night. And, and to me, it, it was really interesting, obviously, because it, it is like a chest plate or a shield. And um, I was really interested in trying to, I guess, arrest or, or cause a kind of... Um, you know, through the process of casting and grinding down these this coral, these coral bones actually, you buy them at, at um, fishing sh at um, like uh, aquariums. Like you buy them in big bags, and they're called coral bones. And I mix them with this other material, um, this gypsum material, and 
And it was really interesting sort of trying to force this a kind of arrested state that sort of spoke to other kind of um, temporalities. And of course, I was looking at um, this work by, um, it's, it's in the actual um, brochure you've got, by a, a silversmith from the 1500s, the 16th century, who had used this red coral to depict the, the story of Daphne with the coral growing out of the head and the hands. But also it made me think of Benini's um, Daphne and Apollo, but also um, other works by Benini that had actually used Carrera marble. And I think what's interesting about that is, is that marble is essentially pulverized, compressed, metamorphosed um, sea life that's been kind of buried back under the earth and then sort of subject to kind of vast um, kind of geological forces that sort of um, arrive in what we understand as, as marble before the human hand comes and sort of produces another form of um, casting on or, or modeling on top of that or, or, or kind of the human agency sort of tries to redirect that form. And so I was really interested in those kind of different temporalities. Um, but really, like, and I guess I was really interested in this, this a way of trying to kind of find a moment where the, the different types of transformation could sort of come together in this single object. And I guess this wasn't really actually going to be the work that I showed, but it was like one that I made um, at the last minute. And I, I, I kind of, in the end, I, you know, I guess with a lot of my work, um, there are a lot of ideas that circle around, but what sort of arrived was just a kind of sense of being with these materials and trying to think through um, a response both, I guess, to this story of Daphne, but also to this, this story of, of nature more broadly. And I guess this work is, is in many regards, a kind of way to bring that into the contemporary moment that doesn't sort of deny the kind of long history of these stories. So I think I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Thank you so much, Nick, for that excellent introduction. Don't don't go away. Um, I was I was I was thinking. I think the reference to, to Bernini is extraordinarily rich, um, and I, I regret that I haven't thought of this before. But um, there's there's something quite quite extraordinary in, in Daphne's myth um, that, that Bernini manages to grasp, which is the, this paradoxical interplay of movement and, and paralysis, the, the, the chase and the stillness, uh, the stasis and, and the flow at the same time. So, so Daphne is running at the same time as roots begin to stem from her, from her toes and, and plant her quite literally into the ground that she will, in a sense, inhabit as a different, as a different form. And I'm struck now by the, in a way, the, a recuperation perhaps or a, a reiteration of that, that paradox in the way in, in which this coral branch or bone, so anatomical or vegetal, seems to both either perhaps protrude from the chest or be incorporated into it, sort of eaten up and, and digested into this pulverized and recomposed logic, or perhaps in a way sent out back into the into the environment. So I don't know if that's a comment or a question. I'm, I'm not absolutely But also, um, there was something that, we're going to play musical masks here, but um, there was something that, that you talked a lot during our conversations about the photographic or the photosynthesis. Yeah. 
And one thing that was really desirable about sculptors that were using that Carrero marble, I learned, is, is that there is a way that actually the light gets trapped inside the marble and somehow brings that, that, that marble to, to kind of to glow or something. So I was really interested in, in think, I mean, obviously this is not Carrera marble, this is like some kind of like um, really crass attempt to kind of, and I like that, that it is this attempt to sort of force that speed through these materials, but also the way that, that, that there is this interplay between the, the story of Daphne and this idea of the image and the sculpture all being this kind of moment of of pause or arrest, that, that to me that was really interesting. And I guess that in terms of, I mean, for me, everyone will have their, different, their own interpretations, but I was kind of thinking that the coral was trying to take back some of that oxygen from the human, that it's actually, it's, it's actually penetrating the body and that it's trying to kind of either like force a kind of symbiosis that we're being denying through our kind of human chauvinism, or that it is actually just saying, well, fuck you, well, give me some of that back. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, are there any questions to Nick? Um, then we could proceed um, into gallery four. Um, to start with, I'd, I'd also like to say thank you to Nawi, Carolyn Briggs um, for welcoming us here. Um, and I'd also like to extend my respect to her and any Indigenous people who are here today. I'd also like to acknowledge that my work um, takes place and this work has taken place on Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung unceded land. Um, and also unceded Larrakia land um, in the top end, where part of this research has, a, a large part of this research has taken place um, and is kind of located. Um, so these sculptures draw on elements of the life and work of the late Australian activist, writer, feminist, and philosopher Val Plumwood. So um, first I'll speak about her for a bit and then I'll move on to speaking about my own work more specifically. Um, Val's two books, Feminism and the Mastery of Nature and Environmental Culture, The Crisis of Reason, both, pu both published in the early 90s, were major contributions to the feminist and environmental philosophy. Val's work argued that environmental issues should be taken as philosophically and morally important which in the canon of Western philosophy they previously hadn't been. She also drew necessary links between environmental justice, first people's justice and feminism. Her writing has been a guiding force in the background of my work um, for a few years now. Um, and so through my, kind of, my conversations with Mikna um, over the past um, maybe three or four years, um, I decided that I really, I really wanted to do a project that that looked at her and her life more directly. Um, you know, on the one hand, because I found her um, and her life so interesting and compelling, but also as a way of approaching sculpture as um, in my own life as a lived um, critical aesthetic practice. And Val believed in philosophy as a life practice. Parallel to her academic world, she lived alone on an isolated mountain in Ewan country. It was there that she built a house out of slabs of sandstone that she collected by hand from the surrounding forest floor. 
committing herself to the care and habitation of this large tract of temperate rainforest, which was cohabited by pristine, fully mature stands of plumwood trees. Through this intimate familial relationship to her home, she renamed herself after the plumwood tree. She'd previously been known as Val Routley. Her commitment to life in and of the forest was as much a blow at the Platonist mind-body split as it was a love of that way of life itself. In 1985, Val famously survived a vicious attack by a saltwater crocodile while working in Kakadu in the Northern Territory. Having deliberated profoundly on this experience, she wrote about its philosophical consequences in an essay called Being Prey. In the essay, she writes of the experience of being death-rolled by the crocodile three times. Quote, it is essentially an experience beyond words of total terror. The crocodile's breathing and heart met metabolism are not suited to prolonged struggle. So the role is an intense burst of power designed to overcome the victim's resistance quickly. The crocodile then holds the feebly struggling prey underwater until it drowns. The role was a centrifuge of boiling blackness that lasted for an eternity beyond endurance. But when I seemed all but finished, the rolling suddenly stopped." End quote. This attack catalyzed much of Val's subsequent philosophical inquiry, radically altering the way that she saw herself. Quote, I glimpsed a shockingly indifferent world in which I had no more significance than any other edible being. End quote. The extreme centrifugal force of the crocodile's death roll shifted her perspective from being a human-centered narrative of selfhood to the frighteningly objective view of being prey. <laughs> the saltwater crocodile is one of the few remaining predators of human beings, a creature which perceives humans not in the inflated terms of individualism, but simply as another palatable piece of food. The title of this work um, is A Stick Developing Eyes, which is paraphrased from Val's Being Prey. Val describes floating down the East Alligator River alone in her canoe and noticing a large stick floating towards her. Quote, I had not gone more than five or 10 minutes down the channel when rounding a bend, I saw in midstream what looked like a floating stick one I didn't recall passing on my way up. As the current moved me toward it, the stick developed eyes. A crocodile. It didn't look like a large one. I was close to it now, but I was not especially afraid." End quote. So with the work, I wanted to pause in this moment of encounter through sculpture as a way of expanding it, um, stretching it out and inhabiting it temporally. I grew up in the Northern Territory and have memories of night walking, being at a school camp and experiencing this chilling shock after shining a torch out onto crocodile-inhabited swamp to see dozens and dozens of bright eyes glistening back across the surface of the water, having had no idea of the crocodile's presence before that. Um, I became interested in what I'm thinking about as this before space of the crocodile's eye the deep black retina, dense with photoreceptors, producing extreme visual clarity. And then the eye's linguistic overlap with the eye of selfhood, as in the capitalized letter I, which is totally shattered in the space of attack. 
The moment when the crocodile's eyes emerge from what is incorrectly perceived as a lump of wood, where the perspective of the crocodile and the human meet and become leveled, then connected and melded through violent spinning encounter. Quote, I leapt through the eye of the crocodile into what I have now come to think of as a parallel universe, one with completely different rules. The Heraclitean universe where everything flows, where we live the other's death, die the other's life, end quote. One particular aspect of Val's biography that I was really drawn to in my research was how, by the time of her death in 2008, she had amassed a large collection of stuffed crocodiles and crocodile statuettes that people had given her. These were an important part of her healing from the attack and trauma. This anecdote formed part of my impetus to make a field of handmade um, crocodile, toy crocodile eyes, which are in these two trays here. A hidden geometry of eyes in the trays follows the pattern of a saltwater crocodile's stomach scales. It's vulnerability, a commodity, the most valuable crocodile leather in the world, a kind of funerary sign at the death of the crocodile. At human hands. The standing sculpture here um, alludes to another type of skin. Each aluminium piece in the configuration is a cast impression of the bark of a plumwood tree. If we're to think of bark as a tree's skin, the smooth wooden surface with knots that sometimes transform into eyes. I visited Val Plumwood's stone house on the mountain and took impressions of a tree in the forest there. Part of that work was learning how to identify a plumwood tree. This process of learning to identify the tree was really helpful in coming closer to a sense of why the trees were so significant to Val. The tree grows these characteristic sucker shoots from its base. Some grow on to produce a ring of trunks while the original trunk dies, making it impossible to ever measure how old the tree is, as the youngest trunk is paradoxically also the oldest. In thinking about what to do with these impressions of plumwood tree skin, I learned about the process of centrifugal or spin casting. Spin casting is a process where molten metal is fed into a mold, which is then spun rapidly while the material hardens in an outer layer. This process is usually used to make pieces of jewellery and hardware, such as belt buckles, machinery parts and pipes. In addition to the spinning process of the metal casts coming into being, um, which recalls the crocodile's death roll, I was thinking of the relationship between typical centrifuge cast hardware, like belt buckles and clasps, and flayed crocodile skin bags and purses. So each impression um, of the plumwood trunk is centrifugally cast in aluminium. And like the experience of entering the crocodile's eye, the sculpture's spinning moment of solidification echoes, um, and just to finish with a quote in an email from Mikna, the twisting of the horizon line, which dramatically reorganizes the relation between figure and ground in attack. The cast could be swivels, blades, coordinates in disorder. The figural superposition of being thrown and being held, scattering and arrest, might be a point of intersection for Val and Daphne. Thank you. Thank you so much.
so much. <clears throat> thank you so much, Lauren, for a beautiful introduction to a beautiful work. Um, and thank you for helping me understand and begin to map out the remarkable connections that exist between Valplamud's metamorphosis and, and, and Daphne's most palpably embodied in the, in the vegetal name, um, as Daphne is the name of the, of the bay laurel that, that Daphne becomes, and, and Val Routley becomes Valplamud. Um, in, a, in, in a strange equivalence over, over time, which in a way is what myths do. They recur over and over again and are good to think with. Um, <clears throat> I, as, you, as, you, as you know, your work is shamelessly instrumentalized in the, in the curatorial um, layout, perhaps in the, in the floor plan of the exhibition. And I just wanted to point out the fact that uh, the trace and the suggestion of an imminent attack and the stillness that immediately precedes it is actually halfway through the exhibition. So in a sense, exactly halfway between the first and the last picture in the show that I mentioned. So in a sense, in terms of an equivalence between Val Plumut versus the crocodile and Daphne versus Apollo, Apollo has caught up with Daphne here. He's chasing her, he's running after her, and he's apprehended her in the last, in the last image. So this is the moment where the confrontation is actually two bodies in one place. Fighting for fighting for space, fighting for, in a sense, for for endurance. Um, in another sense, the instrumentalization concerns a potentially productive, I believe, relationship between this extraordinary object, which uh, we've referred to in conversation as a tripod, so uh, a device, a support structure for an apparatus that might capture images, and the film uh, Next Door by Steve McQueen, where. Um, Charlotte, the, the aggression, the ocular aggression of the, the actor Charlotte Rampling is bathed in a, in a red light that, to my mind, suggests a photographic darkroom where pictures uh, of the attack are taken over and over again as the, as the camera kind of focuses and readjusts endlessly on the, on the, the fraught intersection of two bodies. Uh, and then these photographs, uh, metaphoric photographs, are reassembled, uh, edited as a film. Um, are there questions to Lauren? Thank you all so much. Um, thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Sam. Um, thank you very much, Migna, Lauren, and Nick, um, again, for your wonderful work, your inspiring curatorial vision and thinking. It's a very rich and profound uh, exhibition at once literary, formal, conceptual, and contemporary, and we're really delighted to present here at ACCA. Um, thank you also for joining us for these artist talks this afternoon. Please continue to enjoy the conversation today. We aren't able to offer food and beverage as a result of restrictions, but we hope that you enjoy the conversation and the ongoing uh, engagement with the work. So thanks very much for joining us. <laughs>